Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Mike Wallace about his new book, Greater Gotham, A History of New York City from 1898 to 1919. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us a little something about yourself. I'm a historian. I have been teaching history at John Jay College of Criminal Justice since 1971. I also teach at the City University of New York Graduate Center, and I've established something called the Gotham Center for New York City History, which does a great deal of public programming and can be found at GothamCenter.org. So you've been teaching history for a long period of time. What was it that led you to attempt this multi-volume history of New York City? Well, to understand where the New York version is coming from, you have to understand that there was an even more lunatic enterprise that was its predecessor. And that was a little historiographical survey. In the 1960s and 1970s, when I got into the history biz, the traditional narrative of American history, the 1950s Eisenhower-era version, was very smiley face and very limited. There were virtually no blacks in the traditional accounts. Um, well, yes, they were there. There was George Washington Carver, who had something to do with peanuts. Uh, there were the slaves, but they were more or less content with their law and not worth discussing. The women, half of the population was missing in action. The focus was on the white gentlemen who were entrepreneurs, who were generals, who were statesmen. Um, Gay people, what was that? Uh, Foreign affairs, it was a sunny uh, notion that coming out of the Second War where it was more justifiable that the U.S. was an unmitigated force for good on the planet. In the 1950s and 60s, uh, this picture of American history was challenged by people taking to the streets to demand inclusion in the American present. The civil rights movement, most spectacularly and initially, but followed quickly by the women's movement and then followed by the gay movement and all of this coming more or less at the same time as the anti-war movement. The efforts by previously excluded or ignored groups to uh, attain equality and power inside the American present were matched by what we historians were doing under in tandem with and really spurred by uh, including these excluded groups in the American past. So we 
and we use a very broad term. Uh, my particular cohort of uh, still graduate students or young assistant professors began to incorporate African Americans in the traditional narrative. And some of it was just a simple matter of attitude, given how much had been left out. But more interesting was the fact that once you embrace the notion that these were part of the same social system, black and white, you had to deal with racism. You had to deal with, was it hypocrisy? Was there something more important going on? Uh, in tandem with the activists who were working to include blacks, women, gays, anti-war activists in the American present, we historians worked to include these excluded or under-examined groups in the American past. This had all kinds of ramifications. So if you add blacks to the traditional narrative, it's not just that you're incorporating a new set of people, but you're looking at new relationships. You're looking at racism, which didn't figure in the American narrative in any significant degree. When you include women in the history, you're also including discussions about sexism and relations between the gender, but you're also opening up new areas for study, domestic life, sexuality. Uh, there's an enrichment of the traditional narrative uh, as well as an inclusion of things that are more conflictual than the traditional story allowed. So... I worked with a group of uh, young historians who started a journal to organize this process of repeopling of the American historical narrative. Uh, we created something called the Radical History Review. We created an alternative organization to the National Historical Professional Associations. And after working for, you know, 10 years more or less, it was my feeling from somewhere near the center of this matrix of scholarly work going on that we had collectively rewritten the history of the United States. But most people didn't know it because although there were hundreds of books, monographs, articles, dissertations, there was no overarching counter-narrative that was accessible to a general public that incorporated all of these distinct pieces and uh, posed a, a new way of looking at American history. So I set out to write one, and I enlisted the aid of Ted Burroughs, a colleague of mine, and we worked and we worked and we wrote and we wrote, and after a few years, we had hundreds of pages, and we hadn't gotten out of the 17th century. <laughs> it seemed clear that this project was going to take about 11 lifetimes, uh, partly because it was done in the same way that Gotham eventually would as a narrative history with tons of stories about individuals and the like, but not a dry, structural, academic approach. Uh, so we only had two lifetimes to spare. So after some time of being uh, depressed, uh, I thought, well, let's downshift. Let's let's decant all this stuff we've done about understanding the history of America in global terms. Uh, let's nestle the history of just one city, more manageable approach, uh, New York City, but its story told in national 
and global context. And out of that process came Gotham. So in some respects, this represents a lifelong work. Yes, yes. We don't know yet how it will turn out, uh, but uh, I've been at this for a good many decades. When you pick up with this volume, you uh, were, which is where the first volume left off, New York City has consolidated from five separate uh, communities into one uh, centrally governed metropolis. And this concept of consolidation is one that serves as a theme uh, throughout your book. And I was wondering if you could uh, explain a bit about consolidation and some of the forces that were driving it uh, during the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries. I think you have to begin not with the political consolidation of the cities and villages around the harbor, but I think you have to understand what's happening in the macro economy of the United States, which is at this moment also going through a consolidation process. People like J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller, the financial and industrial elites, thought that the way the economy was run on a free enterprise capitalist basis was nuts. Uh, If you have competing firms, they tend to have cutthroat competition, which means cutting prices. If you cut prices, your profits go down. If your profits go down, you've got to save money somewhere. You cut union, you cut wages. You cut wages, unions emerge. Unions emerge, you've got to suppress them. And the 1890s had been an extremely violent period with massive shootouts in the streets over labor issues. Uh, And if you suppress them, then socialists uh, come to the fore, demanding the whole system be junked and transformed. Nuts, they thought, Rockefeller and Morgan. So their solution was to bring as much competition out of the economic order as possible. And they did this by mergers. Uh, Between 1898 and 1904 was the first great merger wave in American history. Thousands of competing smaller companies were merged into hundreds of giant corporations on the order of United States Steel and General Electric and AT&T and the like. Uh, and of course, these were run by private capitalists. Uh, but they, they, although they made lots of money on this process, they didn't think this was robber barrenness. They thought this was progressive. This was getting rid of the impediments to long-term planning and even being able to cut workers in for a bigger share of the pie if the economy didn't keep collapsing. You have to understand that the background for this is the roller coaster nature of the American, indeed, the global capitalist economy. The uh, economy in New York and increasingly the rest of the country uh, fell apart in 1809, in 1819, in 1837, in 1837, in 1873, in 1894, most recently. And these uh, collapses, all rooted in the financial order, uh, had deeper roots and led to massive depressions. The mid-1890s were known in those days as the Great Depression. So the 
notion that the consolidators, the merger men, had was that this is going to perhaps overcome the legacy of ups and downs and the associated social and economic upheavals. The same people looked at the political competition that was going on in the New York City area. New York was basically Manhattan. Brooklyn was an independent city, the fourth largest city in the United States. Uh, And then there were scores, hundreds of small uh, provincial uh, political jurisdictions uh, scattered in what became the Bronx and Queens and Staten Island as well. So they thought this competition was leading to an unsatisfactory state of affairs because nobody was minding the collective store, most particularly the harbor, which was their raison d'etre, most all of them, for existence. Who was looking after the fact that docks were increasingly being outmoded uh, by bigger and bigger steamships that sink Titanic? Who was looking after the sewage, which was pouring into the bay and creating a nightmare of sludge? Who wasn't thinking about rationalizing maritime and rail-based transport into and out of the city? Well, nobody was, or they were going in different directions. As you explain, the story of the consolidation of New York City doesn't end in 1898. But in many ways, it's just the beginning, because as you explain in the book, there is then this issue of now having to connect the various uh, boroughs together into a uh, something of an integrated uh, transportation network, and how that is an effort that, that it plays out over, over decades. The consolidation of the two great cities and the other political jurisdictions into what was called pretty much universally Greater New York, which is one reason that the name of the volume of this second in the series is called Greater Gotham. The consolidation was there on paper and law, but it was just the beginning of a process of making it real on the ground. And there are a whole series of initiatives that the municipality and its business sector and others have set about constructing. One of them is enhancing the connections of this new megalopolis to the rest of the country. And there were rail tunnels that were built finally digging underneath the Hudson River uh, allowing the Pennsylvania Railroad to channel its way into and under Manhattan and build the top of it Pennsylvania Railroad Station. The huge steamships that were now outclassing the old docks, uh, well, they were dealt with by building the Chelsea Piers, uh, 800-foot-long piers instead of 200-foot-long piers, capable of handling the Titanic and the Lusitania. So they had a smoother transfer of industrial goods coming in from the country into the ships, which then sailed out to Europe and other points. There were also massive uh, amounts of money and labor devoted towards building up a municipal infrastructure that would tie the separate 
then separate cities and boroughs uh, together. Uh, most spectacularly, the great bridges uh, thrown up over the East River, Brooklyn Bridge had been all by itself. Now there were a whole series of uh, passageways across from Manhattan to Brooklyn and Manhattan to Queens. And most critically, the subway system, which uh, tied together the old established territories and opened up new ones. Uh, the Bronx, for instance, had been a largely bucolic territory. Many of the survivor families of the colonial era had large estates there. Well, now, whoosh, the subway comes along and zoom, the tenements rise up along its pathway. And by the end of the period that's covered in the second volume, the Bronx had it been independent, but it had been the sixth largest city in the, in the United States. Uh, water supply, uh, this is a very thirsty super city, so there's a tremendous extension of the aqueduct systems that are running up to the mountains north of New York. Uh, garbage and sewage, uh, vast amounts of industrial and human effluvia pour into the bay, creating a disastrous sludge, uh, methane gas, and it was a sinkhole. And they made some progress on that, but not much. That was left towards for later generations to deal with. By the end of this period, Greater Gotham is a reality on the ground as well as on paper. It's not just a process of building, of, of connecting with the outer portions, though. Yeah, as you described, they're also building upward. And, and your description of the construction of all of these skyscrapers it is truly impressive. Uh, what were some of the factors driving that? Well, to some extent, they were an artifact of the great corporations in a couple of ways. One of them is that the uh, particular concerns, uh, including insurance companies like Metropolitan Life or Equitable, planted their logo, as it were, in the sky over Manhattan. This was the place to be, and it was also the place that would house the tremendous numbers of new clerical aides, accountants. If you're managing now consolidated steel plants that are spread out all over the country, you need a central headquarters, and the central headquarters were the skyscrapers. But they were so spectacularly profitable that, in fact, they drew money into themselves, even if there wasn't a giant corporation being a sponsor. And they all huddled together. This was a phenomenon that you saw in jewelry, in dairy, in all kinds of specific sectors of the economy, garment industry, huddled uh, nearby one another. You would think they would want to sort of separate themselves and distinguish themselves, but they don't. They cluster. And the great corporate uh, headquarters building and the great rental units uh, cluster down in lower Manhattan. Slowly, they advance northward. So the Flatiron building is up at 23rd Street. And the New York Times building, which is at, when it comes up, the second largest in the city, is at Broadway and 42nd Street. So, in um, one last connection with the financial economy, what you get also is the emergence of gigantic real estate development corporations who issue stock, raise money on the New York Stock Exchange, 
and pour it into the building up of new skyscrapers. In fact, so great was the rush to the skies that sometimes the skyscraper itself would get torn down after 10 to 15 years, outmoded because it was outstripped in height by its nearby neighbors and cast into shadow and its fickle tenants fled to higher ground. Another area where capital made a considerable impact was in the cultural development of the city during this period. And I was wondering if you could elaborate upon that and also the degree to which we see consolidation in the city's cultural institutions as well. The notion that consolidation was the solution to a variety of problems was also evident in the cultural arena. Consider libraries. There were several major private libraries, the Astor, the Lennox, the Tilden libraries, and they were struggling along independently, and the notion emerged out of the consolidation movement, well, let's merge them all into the new public library. And I think to this day, if you look at the pediment over the 42nd Street and 5th Avenue grand structure that was built then, you'll see not the new public library, but the Astor, Lennox, and Tilden libraries uh, in now in unity. The same uh, applies in other areas, for instance, education uh, at the university level. The same thing applies in the world of higher education. Columbia College had been a fairly drowsy place where future gentlemen learned their Latin and Greek, and it didn't fit the new requirements of the corporate universe that needed managers, that needed engineers, that needed scientists, that needed accountants, and so forth. So what happened with Columbia, which was the infusion of a great deal of money from the corporate sector, uh, was the transformation of the college into a university. It merged with the law school, with the engineering school, or the school of mines, etc., uh, etc., et until it became Columbia University in the city of New York. Same happened in the medical world and medical uh, education. So the major merger there was between the teaching schools and the hospitals. Uh, and they formed giant uh, medical complexes. So everywhere you look, there was this uh, increase in scale uh, and usually with an architectural component to match, uh, Roman imperial to sort of suit the style and the ambition of the period. So the Grand Beaux-Arts building of the public library, Columbia had an entire campus mapped out, sort of like an acropolis up on Morningside Heights uh, by McKim Mead and by the, the major corporate architecture firm. I was thinking about the names that you mentioned and the degree to which you know people like, say, the Astors and, 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 and Andrew Carnegie really fueled that. And it seems that when it came to the notion of philanthropy, the notion of these donations, that they really, while they were doing all these charitable causes, they were very committed to implementing that consolidation philosophy as a precondition of their giving. They weren't just going to give the money. They were going to give the money to realize that value of consolidation as a good. 
Yes, if you look at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, uh, it's got many sources, but the major one was a newfound desire on the part of the O levels of the 1% uh, to turn themselves into artistic medici. Uh, and that meant, in fact, buying the works of art that were already certified and established as El Primo by European Museums Institution. There's a wonderful cartoon that is in the Gotham, Greater Gotham uh, book of uh, J.P. Morgan bestriding the planet with a huge magnet and he's pulling to it uh, artworks, furniture, knights in armor, etc. And this is, in fact, an accurate representation of what happened. There was a tremendous transfer of cultural artifacts across the Atlantic uh, into New York City with the concomitant expansion of, in this case, the Metropolitan, which became the grand structure, again, Roman imperial in its uh, predilections uh, that we have today. Another area, though, where you see this consolidation is not just in high culture, but also in popular culture. I was uh, surprised by how similar you, the consolidation trends were in the theater uh, community, for example. I was wondering if you could talk about what was happening in terms of popular entertainment in New York City during this time. Well, there was indeed a movement, not exactly towards consolidation, because it didn't lead to the development of one gigantic trust with corporate status, but it was pretty close. Uh, in vaudeville, in the Broadway stage, in the new movie industry that was emerging, in each case, there was a the confederation, as it were, and people like the Schuberts in New York's theatrical world gained control of theaters throughout the country and of producing troops, and they set out to do nothing less than rationalize the national theatrical economy, which they did, and very similar movement took place in vaudeville, uh, where shows were assembled in New York and then sent out on the road, uh, two theaters that were prearranged uh, by the vaudeville headquarters. And in movies, there was an incredibly swift transformation uh, with the Nickelodeons, the little small projectors of silent films, maybe three minutes, four minutes long, in cleaned-out tenement first floors with nickel admittance, uh, so Nickelodeons, uh, which were pretty heavily concentrated in the working-class quarters. Uh, but in, by the end of this period, uh, giant uh, corporations have emerged, Paramount most notoriously, uh, which gained control of the entire Hollywood industry. But it was a Hollywood industry increasingly, uh, partly precisely because Edison himself presided over the formation of the largest corporate trust, uh, and new theatrical producers kept popping up, and they, to escape the wrath of Edison's lawyers, they relocated their smaller operations to 3,000 miles away in Hollywood, uh, but the consolidation movement continued with the rise of the great studios. So in all of those three arenas, plus in movie-making, Tin Pan Alley, again, sort of confederates a large number of independent producers. The record industry with 
a couple of Victor and Columbia sort of capturing the bulk of the control. So everywhere you look, uh, this notion of merging things with, again, an architectural component. So from the Nickelodeon and tenement basements to grand motion picture palaces in Times Square, uh, again, we see the giganticization of New York and its cultural dimension. This trend of consolidation is, in some respects, though, at odds with this other development that's taking place in New York City during this time. And that's this incredible diversity that you describe in terms of the overall population. I was wondering if you could speak a bit to that diversity and uh, what its sources were and how it was shaping so much of the life of the city. The massive immigration of this period, like the periods before it, was not a matter of individuals trickling in and spreading themselves evenly throughout the now gigantic greater New York metropolis. They came in vast groups and either entered into pre-existing demographic enclaves or created new ones, uh, or like runners would shoot out from ganglia and create new ones uh, farther out in the new newly added boroughs. And these enclaves were big enough and dense enough so that they could sustain native language cultures uh, speech on the street or in the, in the household, newspapers, restaurants, clothing styles, etc., etc. What was different about this period was that there was a movement that began to argue that this was a good thing, not, not a matter of setting up people who were at loggerheads with one another, but living more or less uh, cheek by jowl without slaughtering one another. And there were some people who went even farther than this, that this was something that was to be hailed. Uh, there were philosophers like John Dewey and Horace Callan and Randall Bourne who argued that in a completely unplanned fashion, the United States, and of course New York in particular, uh, had created a new social ecological phenomena, a society that in fact thrived on diversity, uh, the diversity was to be uh, applauded. Now, they had their enemies, and their enemies tended to be from the older Anglo-Protestant people who felt that they were more or less entitled to be the centerpiece of the city because it was a matter of cultural primogeniture, as it were. Uh, and those people, in fact, set out to melt the immigrants down in the metaphorical pot and produce people who look just like uh, themselves. And the defenders of diversity, cosmopolitanism was the term that they used at the time, said, well, this is totally nuts. Uh, to suppress these multicolored strands in the metropolitan tapestry and to bleach everything the same color, right, uh, was a mistake of colossal proportions. 
the, the city was divided on this because the people who were interested in coercive Americanization in the extreme with the eugenics movement emerging, uh, making the argument that all these various other peoples uh, were biologically inferior and that the solution to the pollution of the gene pool was either, in extreme cases, sterilization uh, or changing the immigration laws to prevent the inundation of old line lost by Polish Jews and Southern Italians. This was a battle which would continue into the next era. One of the uh, major political developments during this period was the progressive movement. And some of what you're describing uh, uh, harkens to that. I, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what was happening in terms of pro progressivism in New York City during this period and how it was seeking to shape and influence life in the city during this time. There was a thin barrier, permeable one, between the progressive movement, which is largely a middle-class phenomena, and the socialist movement, which spanned the range between middle and working class. Uh, and what they shared was an admiration for the social insurance policies that were being adopted in England, in Germany, and in many places in Europe. And they sought to transfer those programs. Uh, so health insurance was one, insurance against unemployment, insurance against old age, insurance against working factory uh, injuries, uh, a whole panoply of things that are recognizably the roots of what's going to become the New Deal uh, in the next generation. But the philosophical argument is, is that uh, the provision of social goods is, again, not something that should be left to the private market. If there's a depression on, and there were depressions with the regularity of a roller coaster, uh, it was the responsibility of government to provide work if the private sector was unable to do so. And this reliance upon uh, an organized, rationalized uh, social fabric was one of the underpinnings of the progressive movement in the city and that applied at the municipal level uh, as well as it did to calls for transformation at the level of the federal government. But as you explained, it was about more than just a matter of governmental reform. There was also the movement to give women the right to vote. And you see with that movement in particular, but also progressivism more generally, women playing this very visible role in uh, the, the public life of the city. Yes, there was a prior movement, uh, largely middle or upper class women, to sort of break the barriers of professional schools, for instance, lawyers and doctors, and there had been some progress made, but it was very limited. Several things come together in the period of the greater Gotham volume. One of them is the corporatization movement itself. There's uh, all those skyscrapers are office buildings. And offices need vast numbers of clerical workers and typists and accountants and so forth. 
and women enter those uh, occupations. But everywhere you look, there's increase in scale and demand for labor uh, had similar effects. So department stores need sales girls, restaurants need waiters. Uh, and the garment industry needs workers, particularly in the production of ladies' garments. Uh, so vast numbers of women enter the workforce, either because they have to, uh, but they, they, or want to, but they do so in arenas that are not, that are in addition to the traditional female coded labor movement, labor, uh, labor forms, uh, which would be nursing and teaching and the sex trades. This gives rise to a notable recognition that something called a new woman has arrived uh, who is not tethered to domesticity only, uh, but is uh, independent, uh, able to live on their own, at least when they're young women. And the wages, of course, are discriminatory low, but still, relatively speaking, it's a great transformation. This underlies the development of political movements uh, and labor movements, uh, which in fact are interrelated. The women's suffrage movement uh, is very largely centered. It wasn't originated uh, in New York City. The Western states were the first to take the plunge into the suffrage uh, movement. But it becomes the center of it in this period, massive parades, organizations, petitions, uh, etc. It's also interesting, and because it happens at the same time, is the development of women's labor movement. So the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union goes from a handful of seamstresses to being a mammoth operation in which is able to pull strikes that mobilize thousands, tens of thousands of people. And on the link-up is made between the suffragette and suffragist movements uh, and the women's labor movement, uh, which together help explain the ability to power what is now almost exactly 100 years ago, the passage of uh, an amendment saying that women could now vote in New York State, which is generally understood to be critical in the, form in the passage of the 19th Amendment, which makes it a federal issue. One last dimension of this, this is the emergence of a movement that referred to itself as feminist, uh, and among the various uh, demands for changing women's cultural position uh, and political status, was one calling for control of women's bodies. And Margaret Sanger, the founder of what's going to be called Planned Parenthood, is fighting against the restrictive legislation which made birth control not only criminal to actually practice, but to even talk about. Uh, and this was the beginning of a breakthrough on that front as well. So it's a tremendous transformation in the gender positions uh, in New York City in this period. You mentioned how women were benefiting from a lot of the labor trends in the city. Were African Americans in the city uh, similar beneficiaries, or were their opportunities still constrained? This was a Jim Crow city at a moment when the lead for that movement to segregate uh, and uh, take away the right to vote uh, was accompanied by terrorism in the South. Uh, but New York 
was not free of such uh, racist uh, attitudes and legal barriers. Uh, the workforce was deeply segregated with the lowest paid, worst uh, working conditions, jobs uh, reserved for blacks. And it was worse than that. I mean, the, the opening bill, as it were, of race relations in this period was the race riot of 1900, which was when race riots still meant what they had traditionally meant, which was whites invading black territory and beating or burning or demolishing black communities partly because the communities were so small and the demographic relationship between whites and blacks was so overwhelmingly in favor of whites. Uh, so that first riot, which takes place on the West Side, where black areas and Irish areas are cheap by gel, but they're in fact not into multicolorism. And the riot goes on for some time, and then the police show up and unfortunately join the white rioters and beat, and uh, black lives did not matter at this point in time. But there were counter-movements. Uh, one of them was the development of journalistic watchdogs, as it were, who were calling out racism and demanding change. W.E.B. Du Bois was the editor of Crisis Magazine, the organ of the National Association for the Advancement in Colored People. But there were people like A. Philip Randolph and a young radical, uh, Hubert Harrison, uh, etc., but perhaps the biggest transformation in the structure of power relations between blacks and whites was the emergence of black Harlem. Harlem had been white and middle class. Uh, it ex had uh, developed a massive, very uh, nice, affluent-looking buildings for what they assume was going to be a continuation of this wave. But in a nutshell, the community that was where the race riot had been picked up en masse and moved to Harlem, where it was joined by a massive new wave of immigration. So in a relatively short period of time, there were 70,000 people living in a very critical central arena in Harlem. And never again would whites dream of entering into black territory and raising hell, uh, particularly not after the First World War had demonstrated the ability of black uh, soldiers to wield weaponry and collect medals from the French government for their fighting against the Germans. Uh, the Harlem Hellfighters lived in Black Harlem, and they knew how to use weapons and were prepared to do so. So these are changing balance of power, but the power still overwhelmingly lies with the racist white structure. You mentioned how World War I changed the situation for African Americans in the city. I was wondering if you could expand a bit upon the other ways in which the war changed uh, the course of the city in, in so many ways. It, it's How you have it in the book is you have all these trends taking place, and then you have this war as this incredibly transformative event. What are some of the ways in which those transformations played out? Well, there's, there's two really big ones. One of them is 
metropolitan scope. The other one is global in scope. On, on the first front, New York City was divided, as was the country, over the notion of getting into the war. The war starts in 1914. The U.S. only uh, arrives uh, at the combat zone in 1917. Those three years were fiercely debated between people who wanted to get into the war and people, the overwhelming majority of the city and the country, who wanted to stay out. But you have to read this in terms of the ethnography and the class relationships as well. In the city, the people who were pushing for getting into the war were overwhelmingly the Anglo-Protestant community, paced by the corporate and financial leaders like uh, J.P. Morgan. And the people who opposed it were of different ethnic and class persuasion. So the Germans had no interest whatsoever in going to war with Germany. Uh, the Irish hated the British Empire. Uh, the Jews were appalled by the czarist pogroms. And the vitriolic battles over preparedness or pacifism were fought out so with so increasing intensity because positions on overseas matters overlapped so precisely with internal uh, divisions along class and racial lines. Um, at the global level, you have to realize what an incredible transformation was wrought in the financial status of the United States. When that war began, the United States was a debtor nation. It was in hock to European overwhelmingly capitalists who had, over the previous 50 or so years, invested huge amounts of money in buying up the stock and therefore providing the capital for railroads, for mines, for factories, uh, etc. The whole industrialization of the North American continent was financed largely by European capital. So uh, the United States owed Europe, roughly speaking, $4 billion back when a billion was a billion. And the course of the war transformed that. So immediately, when the war starts, there's a scramble amongst European nations to rush to the U.S. and buy weaponry, gas masks, poison gas, rifles, etc., the panoply of tools of modern industrial warfare. And they paid for it with gold. It was still a gold standard uh, economy. But then they ran out of gold. So they began selling off on the New York Stock Exchange all their accumulated holdings, uh, transferring ownership and power from one side of the Atlantic to the other. Then they still ran out of money, and they'd sold off all their stocks. So what they proceeded to do is borrow from the people to whom they had been lending, chiefly the House of Morgan oversaw this. By the end of the war, there's been a complete and total reversal. The United States is now a creditor nation to the tune of roughly $4 billion. And for our story, most important is that New York City is now in a position to do what had long been anticipated only as a possibility, combat London for the position of the center <coughs> of the financial structure of the global economy. Lyndon doesn't abandon uh, the top position because they still have the empire and they still have the navy. But 
it's a new ball game, and the New York and London contest is going to be fought out through the 20s and 30s, and ultimately, with the end of the Second World War, the pendulum will swing completely across the North Atlantic, and New York, as evidenced by the arrival also of the United Nations, emerges as arguably the capital of the world. Now, that's a period that you intend to cover in your third volume. Uh, I was wondering, how is uh, the progress on the third volume coming along? Well, it's it's not bad, actually. I mean, if I was starting from scratch, uh, it might look a bit daunting because it's been, what, 16 years since the last volume came out. But the original notion was to have the second volume in the series run down to the end of the Second World War, not the end of the First World War. Uh, so, in fact, I've written a great deal of stuff on the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, but then... That was the problem. We looked at the total emerging page count, and it was 3,000 and change, uh, which exceeded the limits of binary technology and probably reader patience. So the decision was made to sort of do a two-for-one stock split and stop the second volume at the end of the First World War. So volume three, which will cover and take the story down to the end of World War II, is largely done. It's not going to happen next week, uh, but it won't take 16 years either. Well, I hope it comes out sooner rather than later, because I do look forward very much to reading the next volume of the series. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, Mike Wallace, for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us today. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks so much.